Well, if you would turn to Psalm 89. Uh, in the church Bibles, that's page 597, and in the large print Bibles, 926. Uh, if you haven't uh, got a Bible with you, uh, it would be helpful, actually, uh, to have one to follow along. Uh, and there are plenty at the back if you want to go and grab a Bible. Uh, psalm 89 is a, a lengthy psalm. Uh, so rather than read it all at once, uh, we're going to read sections of it as we go through. And having your Bibles open uh, will be helpful uh, to follow in that regard. Well, C.S. Lewis uh, had uh, an, an analogy that he uh, used that talks about the power of our expectations. Uh, this is what he said. If you're shown a hotel room you've been told is the honeymoon suite, your expectations will be high. If there's no plush carpet, spa, and champagne, you'll be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even modest comforts. Now, we've received uh, great promises as God's people. And those promises give us expectations of how God will fulfill them. But God doesn't always fulfill those promises in ways that we might expect. We may expect our Christian experience to be like a honeymoon suite. And we find ourselves disappointed when we end up in more like a prison cell. Now, for many Christians in the world, that is actually a reality. But for us, we can feel like my Christian experience should be like a honeymoon, but actually, in reality, it is anything but. And actually, we shouldn't expect right now to be on a kind of a honeymoon as Christians. As Christians, the New Testament makes it clear that actually we are at war. It's a war against sin and against Satan and the forces of darkness. There is a honeymoon promised because in Revelation we read about a wedding, but we're still waiting for that time. And the tension between expectation and reality was faced by a man called Ethan in Psalm 89. He fills the gap between expectations versus reality. Ethan is the brother of uh, Heman, who we uh, looked at a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 88. Uh, Psalm 89 uh, actually is a much longer psalm, and it's broken into three sections, one of praise, one of protest, and one of pleading. And we're going to look at the psalm in these uh, different sections. And he actually begins with the longest section of the psalm, uh, with a long section of praise, which actually, if we read on its own, is a real encouragement. So I want us to be encouraged by the praise of the Lord that goes on, but in the middle of the psalm, there is a big but, where it turns and we realize that the praise, as good as that praise is, is actually setting us up for his expectations not quite being met. So first of all, we see 
the praise of the faithful Lord. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 to 4 to begin with. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Well, these first four verses provide the foundation for the rest of the praise in this psalm. Uh, The key word here is the word forever. Notice how it's repeated in verses 1, verse 2, and verse 4. And forever speaks of the faithfulness of the Lord, that what God says will stand forever. And his praises are in the form of a song. Ethan will sing of the Lord's great love forever and sing of his faithfulness to all the generations in the future. And those words love and faithfulness are linked. The Lord's love for his people is a faithful love. It's a love that lasts no matter what. It's the the kind of love we talk about in marriage, isn't it? When we get married, we promise to love one another until death do us part. That's about as forever as it can get as people on earth. And the faithful love of verse 2 tells us is established in heaven itself. This means uh, in, in the heavens itself or in the cosmos. The faithful love of the Lord is shown in the faithfulness he shows to the cosmos, to all of uh, the universe. And then in verses 3 and 4, the faithful love of the Lord is shown in the way he makes the covenant with David. In our Bible reading, we read 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises David that he will be king over God's people on a throne that will last forever. So we see the Lord uh, faithful in his uh, love uh, to the cosmos, and his love to, in the covenant that he gave to David. His faithfulness is shown in those two ways, in the cosmos and in the covenant. And faithful love is an attribute of our God, which is wonderful, isn't it? He's not going to stop loving us. It's a, a promise that is binding upon God himself. No matter how unlovely we think we are, or how unlovely we actually are, And God will continue to love us, no matter what. And that's something that God's people have sung about for all generations. And it's one thing to sing of God's faithful love, as Ethan is doing in these first four verses, but Ethan goes even further and provides evidence of God's faithful love. And the rest of the praise, up to verse 37, expands on these two aspects of God's faithful love to the cosmos, and to the covenant. So first of all, praising the Lord of the cosmos. Verses 5 to 8 talk of the Lord's majesty, which we've been singing about tonight. Listen to, or read along with me from verse 5. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? 
In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Well, the heavens here include the angels, and, and they're praising the wonders of the Lord. They, the angels recognize that there is no one like God. He's majestic in the midst of, of the heavenly hosts, who are also majestic, but God is more so. And they declare the incomparable greatness of God. So we see God's majesty here. And then from verse 9 to 13, we read of his mastery. So we see his majesty and then his mastery of how God rules over creation. Look at verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon, sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. So these verses talk of the, the, the mastery that God has over all of creation. He rules or has complete control over the sea and the waves. Now the sea and the waves are powerful and they are uh, just chaotic if you go to the beach and you stand in the sea, there's nothing you can do to stop those waves coming. But the Lord, it says here, stills them. Uh, Rahab, there in verse 10, uh, actually is, in the Bible is used in two different ways. Uh, one is it's the name of the prostitute from Jericho who was saved uh, from the destruction. But more often, actually, in the Bible, Rahab is used as a name for Egypt, whom God crushed and scattered. And the link there is to the sea is that because in the end, it was as God brought the sea back uh, to its normal place, the Red Sea, that covered the Egyptian army, that God showed uh, great power over the sea uh, for the Israelites. So he rules the sea, but also the heavens and the earth that he himself founded. And he rules all of it, the north and the south. Uh, Tabor and Hermon, they're mountains. One is big, one is small. So he, he, he rules over the big things and the, the smaller things. Uh, he, he rules all the points of the compass, the heights, the depths. That's the power of the Lord of the cosmos. And as we look around creation, we see much, don't we, to praise God for. It is awesome. And it shows the faithfulness of God as well. Because although creation in some senses is chaotic, we see natural disasters and such things, it also shows the faithfulness of God. The sun rises and the sun sets. We can predict, we know what, when that is going to happen, don't we, each day. In, I've got a, a, an annual, a calendar, and in the front of the calendar, it's got all sorts of interesting information, one of which is telling me when the sun is going to rise and when it's going to set. And it's not often that useful, uh, but it's there because we know, it's, we know what's going to happen. We know that uh, there's oxygen for us to breathe. It's there. It shows the faithfulness of God. And creation is one of the, the signposts that God gives us to reveal himself to humanity. Ethan goes on uh, to say, though, that it's a great blessing if we recognize where the signpost is pointing. It's one thing to see a signpost that points somewhere, but if you don't follow the signpost, it's not much good, is it? 
Well, look at verses 14 to 18. It tells us of the blessing of recognizing where creation is pointing. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength. And by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Well, the Lord is the King of creation, and he sits on a throne where he rules with righteousness and justice, love and faithfulness. And for those who have learned this, who know this God, we read that they are blessed. Blessed are those who learn to acclaim you. And that word acclaim uh, literally means uh, a shout of celebration. It's like um, uh, when, when a goal is scored in football and the crowd will jump up and start celebrating. That's what's going on here. Well, that's not what's going on. There's no goals, but that's what the, the kind of celebration that's going on. They're celebrating the fact of, of God's greatness Uh, singing and shouting together. That's what's going on. Uh, Blessed are those who have learned to to celebrate the fact that this God, the the God of the cosmos, is the great uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we we follow him. It's a a blessing to know him. And and this is what it means, uh, by the way, to exalt our horn. The uh, horn is a symbol of strength. Uh, And so God uh, lifts us up, making us strong, for the battles that we face. It's a blessing to know God because he lifts us up, he helps us, he strengthens us if we know him. Now, similarly, the shield there is a protection. It belongs to the Lord and the king protects his people uh, who belong to him. And so again, it's a blessing to belong to this God. He, he gives strength, he protects his people. Now for us as New Testament people, we know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the cosmos. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the king who sits on the throne, who reigns and rules with righteousness and justice. All those uh, attributes that we have seen here, praising God, apply to Jesus, who is God. So we praise the Lord of the cosmos. And Ethan ends this section that we've just uh, read by making mention of his king. And the king is the king of God's people, Israel. And Ethan then goes on to speak of this king and the promises God has made to him. He goes on to praise the Lord of the covenant. So we've seen the, the, the cosmos and we praise God for that. But Ethan moves on to praise for something else. He praises God for the covenant. Uh, Verse 19 begins, once you spoke in a vision. And that's like saying, uh, once upon a time. So he's about to to tell a story, if you like. So the first uh, section of praise is a hymn of praise. Uh, It's a song, if you like. And here now, we're about to, to hear an oracle of praise. A story about the Lord of the covenant. And he refers back, once upon a time... Uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made those big promises to King David. Now in Deuteronomy, God had promised his people that they would have a king to rule over them. And after the failure of King Saul, 
uh, David became king, and he was the king that was promised to Israel. And this oracle about David is in two parts. And first of all, we see the anointing of David, the anointed king, from verses 19 to 27. So let me read that to you, the anointed king. So once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my, the rock, my savior. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth. This describes David as the anointed king. Anointed means specially chosen. And we see how God chose David especially and gave him strength and raised him up. He plucked him from the shepherd's field and made him the king over all Israel. And he says how he will sustain him and how he would be delivered from all of his enemies. The faithful love of the Lord will be with David. His reign will show the faithful love of the Lord. In, in part, we, this is seen in how David's reign mirrors God's. Notice in verse 25, God sets David's hand over what? The seas and the rivers. But what this, what, what this means is that David will have power given to him by God. Uh, We don't read of David performing any miracles on the water of the sea or the rivers. We don't see that. There's no reason to believe that he did. What the psalmist is saying here is that the power that God has as king will be bestowed upon his anointed ruler, King David, who represents him on earth. This mirroring is also shown in the way that David calls God my father and how he's the firstborn, not the one born first, that's not what it means, but the heir. The one who inherits uh, the rights of the kingship. David, as the son, represents his father and as such is the most exalted king in all the earth. So David here is presented as the chosen king. He is the king that God has picked out to rule over his people, representing the Lord himself before the people in the way he rules and reigns. The anointed king. And this king has a reign that will last forever. We've seen the anointed king, first of all, but from verse 28 to 37, we see the endless dynasty. So we've seen the anointed king, he praises God for that, and then we see the endless dynasty. So let's read on from verse 28. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever." And his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon. 
the faithful witness in the sky. Notice in these verses again the use of forever or similar words like never fail, endure, and faithfulness. God promises David not only that he would bring him victory in his life as king, but that his throne would last forever through his descendants. Do you see the promise of 2 Samuel 7 here in this section? How God promises a throne that will last forever. Even if they sin and are punished, verse 33 promises that God's love will not be taken from them. So strong is this promise that in verse 35, God swears by his holiness, his very being. There is nothing higher for God to swear by. He promised that this line of David would continue forever. It would be before God like the sun and the moon, which stand faithfully as witnesses to God's faithfulness in the sky. Now, we know as New Testament people that Jesus is the anointed king who reigns forever. He is the Christ, which isn't Jesus' surname. Christ means anointed one. He is the king who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, who sits on the throne, ruling and reigning, and will return to judge the living and the dead. The promises to David are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we can praise God as the Lord of the covenant. We praise him for all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That we can be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. All those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we praise God for those things. And if the psalm ended here, where we praise God for his creation, and we praise God for his promises, and how he's the the faithful Lord, uh, we could say amen, we could sing, we could have a very happy time. And all those things would be true. But this psalm was written before Jesus came, and and verse 37 is really only about halfway through the psalm. Well, a bit more than halfway. It doesn't end with Ethan just praising God. It came at a time in Israel's history when it looked like all those promises to David were in ruins. And the Lord of the cosmos is not using his great power for the good of his people. We're not sure exactly when the psalm was written, but we do know that at the end of the book of Kings, Israel, God's people, were in a terrible place where they didn't even have a king because the king had been taken captive and was locked away in Babylon. Even if they did have a king, he wouldn't have anything to rule over because their land had been destroyed. All these promises, Ethan was thinking, what's happened to them? All these promises are wonderful, Ethan says, praise the Lord. But then at the beginning of verse 38, what's that word? But. And it's a sharp turning. A turning point in the psalm that makes it not a psalm of praise, But actually, this is a psalm of lament. The gap between the promises that he's just been singing about and giving a story about don't match up to the reality that he is now facing. And so Ethan turns from praising the faithful Lord to protesting the faithful Lord. And there is a protest against God that begins in verse 38. And all the way up to verse 45, Ethan accuses God. Notice as we read this next section, 
uh, the repetition of the word you, which is referring always to God. So, from verse 38, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one, you have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. See Ethan's emotion here. Look at the words he's using for how God has treated his people. Words like rejected, spurned, very angry, renounced, defiled, broken through, and so on. The protest here is that what is happening in reality is the opposite to what has been promised and praised in the verses before. In verse 43, God raises the right hand of who? Their enemies. When in verse 13, God's right hand is exalted. And in verse 21, the Davidic king's hand is supposed to be strengthened. And in verse 25, that Davidic king is supposed to control with his hand the seas and the rivers. But whose hand seems to be willing? It's the hand of the foe, the enemy. In verse 24, God's king would beat his enemies. But in verse 40, the walls are broken through. The enemies have won. In verse 28, the king is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. He's the heir. But in verse, um, uh, but, but he has been rejected and spurned. And in verse 44, has had an end put to his splendor. The most exalted king in the earth, he is cast down to the ground and has a mantle of shame. And according to Ethan, God has done this. God has done it. You, 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 God, he says. And God has warned, had, had warned his people over and over again to turn to him throughout the book of Kings. But God's people rejected him and their enemies did overrun them. And at the end of the time of Kings, it looked as if God's people were just a footnote in history. And Ethan felt like God had given them great promises, but the reality was that they were not delivered as he expected. He felt they were not delivered at all. He expected the, the, the political nation of Israel not to fail. But God's promises were, were bigger than he expected. And because he did not see this, he was disappointed. Now, we have the hindsight of looking at the New Testament. We know Jesus has come. But Ethan hasn't reached that point yet. As far as he can see, all that God has promised is just being trampled in the dust. And although we know Jesus has come, when something goes wrong in our lives, it is right that we can be sad and angry and upset and so on. And we saw that in Psalm 88, didn't we? We're not robots. Suffering, though, in our lives in any form Although it is painful and, and all those things, it should never be completely unexpected. We shouldn't think because we're Christians, I don't expect to suffer in any way. 
Our interpretations of how God will keep his love and faithfulness to us often can lead us to feel like we shouldn't suffer. And we can expect God to have promised us things that really we shouldn't expect him to fulfill. So here's some, so, so some examples. Surely God will save my children. I expect God to do that. And then they are not coming to faith. Then we wonder, what's going on, God? Now, it's right that we pray and we plead with God for our children. Of course it is. But we shouldn't expect that we have a right to see them saved. If that's our expectation, well, then we can be very disappointed. We can have expectations about having a, a happy marriage, a fairy tale. Uh, we have the fairy tale wedding and we think the marriage should be the same. But it very rarely is. And we can say to God, well, God, you, you promised that Christian marriage should be always happy and delightful all the time. And our expectations aren't met. And we can start to blame God and feel disappointed over a promise that he never really made us. We might feel that God provides for our needs, so therefore I should never struggle financially. And we have that expectation, and it's right that we pray that God will provide for our needs and trust God to do so, but he never promises us we will never struggle. We can have expectations of church. We should all love each other. We'll all always get on in church. And you become a member, and it doesn't take long to realize that actually, I don't get on with everybody all the time. And we can end up very disappointed. However, even if our expectations can be wrong ones, this psalm shows us that we can bring those disappointments to God and express how we don't understand. Now, Ethan uh, the, the promises that Ethan quotes here are, 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 are true and right promises. The problem Ethan had was the way that he expected those promises to be fulfilled were not met. How they were fulfilled was not meeting his expectations. Now, Psalm 88 was a prayer uh, of an individual who was suffering. But actually, this psalm, even though we've applied it to us as individuals... Uh, is more of a corporate psalm as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a people of God. And as the people of God, we can feel that God has made us promises, which he has, and our expectation of how those promises will be fulfilled aren't always met. So here's a couple of examples. God has said, I will build my church. Jesus said that. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on to, on to you and you will be my witnesses. And we can look at those verses and our expectation can be, our church is just going to explode with growth. If I go and I'm, I'm going to plant my church and it's going to just be epic. Because God said, I will build my church. That can be what we expect. And then the reality comes that we're not seeing thousands become Christians, and this is really hard, and what's going on? And we can appear as a church, especially uh, in our day, in our nation, to be defeated and under attack. We see 
Uh, all sorts of things going on, don't we, where the authority of Scripture is questioned and churches is, uh, are often falling away. We can see apathy. We can see people not coming in their droves. We can get exasperated when 97% of the population of the United Kingdom don't believe in Jesus. And we can be, it can be lamentable. And we can say, but God, you said you'd build the church. What do we do? Well, I think it's uh, according to this psalm, we can pray and protest and say to God, God, why aren't you building your church more? Why, why aren't we seeing more happening? We can ask God those things. Certainly, we need to bring those disappointments to God. But perhaps we need to realize that the expectations that we have might be wrong, even though the promises God has made are true. Because God is doing things in a far bigger and greater way than we can possibly comprehend. So we can protest. Well, also, uh, we, what we see Ethan doing in the, towards the end of the psalm is pleading. He protests the faithful Lord, but from verses 46 to 51, he begins to plead with him. This is where he really prays. How long, Lord, in verse 46, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death, or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love? which in your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. How long is the cry of the oppressed? And Ethan asked God to remember. Now, remembering here isn't God being forgetful, like when you've lost your keys or something like that. When the psalmists pray, remember, it's rather asking God to bring to mind that results in action, to, to bring it to the, the mind that would result in God doing something. And he, he wants this reality of God's people being oppressed to end. And he wants it to end because his life is just so fleeting. He's pleading with God to act quickly, in verse 47, how fleeting is my life, so act quickly, Lord, is what he's saying. He's pleading with God to act according to his former great love, that is, his promises to David. He pleads with God to remember the mockery of his people, which is actually a mockery against God himself. If the anointed one represents the Lord and is mocked, well, then it's the Lord himself who is being mocked. Now, for us, we can pray these kind of prayers we can look at our nation and we can see the, 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 the lamentable state that we are in. And it's, it's right that we plead with God on behalf of this nation. It's right that we plead with God on behalf of the church. And we pray. That's what Ethan does. He's, he's pleading with God here. And his, his, his heart is in, in the right place. And that he's, he's wanting God's name to be lifted high and glorified. Well, that's how the psalm ends. Uh, it's almost like an, an abrupt end. Uh, verse 52, which we will look at very briefly in, in a moment, isn't the end of this psalm, but rather the end of book three of the psalms. Psalms is broken into five books. 
The psalm actually, Psalm 89, ends at the end of verse 51. But we can praise God that the New Testament doesn't end at the end of Psalm 89 and verse 51. Because Ethan's plea that he prayed for has been answered in Jesus Christ, the final and forever Davidic king who brings ultimate victory. And he's the ultimate answer to this plea. Jesus is the one who did escape the grave. After being anointed and rejected, he died, as he died on the cross to pay for our sin and defeat the greatest enemy of sin, he rose again and defeated death. And if we have our sins forgiven and trusting in the death of Jesus, on the, uh, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, we can have a part of being in that forever kingdom and being in that relationship with God for eternity. But God's people from Psalm 89 had to wait many, many years before Jesus came. This plea that he prayed was not answered immediately. The expectations were not met for Ethan, but God's plan was far bigger than he understood. Ethan thought God's people had ended because the king no longer was on the throne. But God's plan was far bigger. He had a king who was coming called Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. A far greater enemy than Ethan was facing here. The disciples, they watched Jesus arrested and taken away. And he was dying on the cross and they wondered, Lord, what on earth is going on? Their expectations were not met because God's plan was bigger than the disciples could even imagine. On the third day, he rose again, a far bigger and greater plan than even the disciples had. At this point of the psalm, Ethan was confused and didn't understand. As Jesus was on the cross, the disciples were confused and didn't understand. And perhaps here this evening, you are confused about what is going on in your situation and wondering, Lord, what is going on? But God is working his purposes out. And in all our disappointments, he is working beyond what we can see at a level of complexity that is beyond what we can understand and is working for our good and for his glory. We are not in a honeymoon suite. We are at war. We shouldn't expect more than what God has promised but we can expect a honeymoon in the future. That is when the Lord returns. Because Revelation talks about the wedding of Jesus and his church. And so in the midst of the disappointments and misunderstandings of right now, we can hold on to the hope that the plan of God will end with a wedding. Where we will be with Jesus forever. And at that time, we'll be in the honeymoon suite of heaven, and it will be forever. There'll be no disappointments or misunderstandings. But right now, we are under attack, and times are hard, and the great promises of God may look like they're being trampled in the dust. But the promises of God are being fulfilled, and one day, all God's enemies will be crushed, and God's kingdom and his people will be all that remains. We may be waiting a long time, but Jesus is returning, 
And so we need to keep going. We need to keep praying, giving our disappointments to God, and we leave them with the God who is for you, with you, and who truly is the faithful Lord. Although Ethan quoted all sorts of promises that he couldn't see being fulfilled, those promises are still true. We can praise our faithful God. And at the end of the the book three of the Psalms, in verse 52, that's where we end. Whatever our situation, praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Well, as we close our time together, we're going to sing. Uh, We're going to sing, Sovereign Lord, we sing your glory. And the words of this song are wonderful words that teach us about the the greatness of the sovereign Lord and of his plan for each of us and for his universe. So let's stand and let's sing together the truth of the sovereign Lord.